Welcome back to the Happy Saver podcast. Johnny and I have had a fantastic break over the summer, but are back into it now. And the plan is to bring you a fortnightly podcast release every second Wednesday New Zealand time. Now, I think most of you know us by now, but for those who don't, I'm Ruth and together with my husband, Johnny, we have been creating the Happy Saver blog and podcast since 2016. Now, Johnny's the reason the production quality is so high and my domain is creating the stories that you hear. Also, via my blog, The Happy Saver, I basically spend my days writing about money, specifically personal finance and how to make sense of it all in today's world as it relates to me and my whanau of three. Now, via this podcast, I am particularly interested in sharing the money stories of other people, just everyday Kiwis, no matter the age or stage of life. Basically, I'm just endlessly fascinated with what others choose to do with money, and my intention is to learn their story and then condense it down so that you can hear helpful, relatable, and hopefully actionable stories of fellow Kiwis who have gone out on a limb to speak with me and share their experiences, their tips, and their point of view on personal finance right here in Aotearoa. So now on to today's podcast. Straight out of the gate, I can tell you that this was one of the hardest podcasts I've ever written and created. The reason is that sometimes I meet someone who is newer to personal finance, and when they find it, they go all in and have a lot of fresh perspectives to share. Nick, who is 42 years old, was one of these people. Her first ever email to me went like this. Ruth, I have recently become absolutely obsessed with your podcasts, your philosophies, and the need to manage my money and save for my future. I knew I didn't want to work forever, but just didn't know how to go about getting there. The way I was going, I would have potentially got there based purely on good luck, then again if luck ran out. I'm one of those people who earn a ton of money and get nowhere fast. She said that she was an educated person, reasonably intelligent, and yet so dumb with finances. So this podcast is a good one for showing the progression of thoughts and behaviours over time. And when the two of us got together, our biggest challenge was time. From our emails, we both deduced that talking a lot was a skill set we both shared. So we set ourselves a three-hour deadline, and even once that ended, the information kept coming to me via email. So my biggest challenge has been condensing it down into this podcast today. But I think I've cracked it and I'm delighted to share the journey of this high-octane professional wahine. But before I crack on, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you about today's sponsor, Pocketsmith. Are you busy? I'm busy. Everyone's busy these days. That was one of the main reasons why I stopped tracking my income and expenses by hand and switched to Pocketsmith instead. I took a bit of time to learn how it all works and now 99% of the work is done for me. I use Pocketsmith to track my household's multiple income streams plus our random assortment of weekly, monthly and annual expenses. Whenever I can, I look to automate and optimise household systems beyond simple budgeting. A fun fact, if you are one of the 88% of Kiwis who invest, Pocketsmith also connects with most KiwiSaver providers, investment platform sharesies, and it lets you integrate with your share site investment portfolio. If you want to supercharge your finances with Pocketsmith, they've got a deal for you. Happy Saver listeners get a whopping 50% off your first two months of Pocketsmith's premium plan. To get your deal, go to pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. That's pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. Nick's mum was a nurse by profession and raised two tamariki, Nick and her younger brother, 
She became a single parent and moved to the Waikato to be a little closer to Nick's grandparents. Until she could get back on her feet, she needed what was called the DPB, or the Domestic Purposes Benefit, to get by. Nick's mum rented cheap farmhouses, and looking back she now realises that there was very little money around. In those early years she said her mum might have been down, and she certainly struggled, but she was not out. Although she suspects her mum went without, Nick never felt that she did. She said it was a childhood that dreams were made of. Lots of on-farm adventures with local kids, making huts, fishing for eels, and swimming until dark or until her mum called her home. She went to the local rural school. Her mum sewed her clothes and served up healthy, cheap, in-season food, helped in part with the support from her grandparents, with veggies from their garden, and meat from animals that they had reared. When Nick started school, her mum began a seven-year process of training by correspondence to be an accountant, fitting in study around kids and working if and when she could, eventually moving into full-time work in accountancy when Nick was about 15. Looking back, Nick is immensely proud of her mum for doing this. It would not have been easy, but it set her and her brother up for a financially safe life and future. Eventually, through hard work and determination, and sadly via an inheritance left when her mum's parents passed away far too early, when Nick was just 12, Nick's mum was able to buy her own home, their first family home, and just six years ago she paid it off in full, a huge undertaking and achievement. Nick bought her first 10-speed bike and stereo from money saved up from collecting tons of pine cones that she then sold at the local petrol station. Basically, if she wanted something, she learned early on that she had to go out to work to earn the money to buy it. From the age of 15, she worked at her local hospital, helping to serve food to patients, then her local RSA, then later, to make some money before she started uni, she worked on a factory line eight hours a day producing chemical cleaners, and it was all minimum wage stuff. Although she hated that job, she loved the owners of the company. Her employer was a true entrepreneur, going on to grow their fledgling business and sell it for millions of dollars. They also said to her that if she went to uni and did a business degree or HR, they would employ her. Nick had other ideas. She was an excellent school student with a passion for animals, and there was no doubt in her mind that she would become a vet one day. So apart from the bike and stereo, what did she do with all this money earned throughout her school years? Well, she spent it, all of it, on a car, on petrol, on things she wanted, on trips to Hamilton and the Mount, concerts, summer fun, movies, food, and more food. By the time she went to uni, all she had was maybe two grand in the bank, a drop in the ocean compared to what she had earned and what she would need. Nick said that there was never a question of how she was going to fund university. She was always going to loan the lot. She qualified for a student allowance for her first two years of study, which helped, but for her it was not enough. She ticked up all her fees and accommodation, including a year in a hall of residence, on a student loan. Because her mum had spent so long on her own financial journey, she did manage to buy a cheap house in the town Nick was studying in that Nick and her friends rented. Nick said she was terrible at paying rent, but thankfully her flatmates were better. Nick's mum sold this house after six years, making just a little on the sale. Today she is in her own home, has KiwiSaver to top up her pension, but simply loves her four-day-a-week job too much to quit, which sounds perfect to me, and it was good to hear that after a bumpy start, she has both stability and happiness. While at uni, Nick's kindly bank offered her an overdraft. Yes, please, she said, I'll take that. They gave her a $500 overdraft, which over time crept up to $1,500. 
Plus, she borrowed $1,000 each year for course-related costs. Absolutely, let's be having you was her thinking on that debt. She did manage to collect two scholarships during her time at university, totaling about five grand. And when I asked where that went, she said, it just all got spent on her car, the pub, and good times with friends. She failed to make it into vet school in the first six-month intake, so she changed her course and set about completing a different degree. So all up, she was at university for three and a half years and completed a Bachelor of Applied Science in Agriculture. Her plan was to reapply to vet school at the end of her degree, but when that time rolled around, the cost and the length of time it would take to complete vet school meant that it was no longer the path she wanted to take. While she studied, she also picked up part-time work at uni doing various jobs. Nick was not afraid of hard work. If she needed an injection of money, she would go to student job search, get a job, smash out the work, get paid, and then, you guessed it, spend all the money. She did eventually get a steady gig working 10 hours a week as a note-taker at uni and also working at a petrol station on the weekends. But again, she just spent all of the money that she earned. And when the holidays came around, she worked and saved up a little money to take back to university, which she subsequently spent. There was no faulting her great work ethic and her ability to keep her grades high. But all that mahi did nothing to teach her how to get her money working for her instead of her working for it. She was stuck in the cycle that far too many of us find ourselves in, work, earn, spend, repeat. Her strength was also her weakness. Her undoing, she said, was that she was never afraid to work hard. So if she ran out of money, she just picked up more work. She was never broke. It was just that whatever she earned, she spent. She was always back at square one with an empty bank account, which would prompt her to find more work. She remembered that she rang her mum for money one time when she was at uni. She wanted to attend a big party that she had to buy a ticket for. Her mum said no. So Nick biked to student job search and signed up to an eight-hour gardening job starting the next day. She biked across town for an 8am start, and it turned out to be the worst garden she had ever seen. She made $120 cash plus unlimited cool lemonade while she worked, but by 4pm she was knackered and couldn't even bike home so her flatmate collected her. She had a shower and then promptly fell asleep and slept through the party. Not only that, her mum rang the next day to say that she had put the money she originally asked for in her account. So we can't dispute the fact that this girl knows how to work. Nick left university in June of 2001 with a student debt of about $38,000, which was a lot back then. She had no money but an evolving interest in the dairy industry and a Bachelor of Applied Science in Agriculture, which she held in high regard. She set out to gain some practical experience in that field. She returned home, moved in with her mum and spent the summer working really hard, moving into the area of relief milking, which is quite well paid. She was able to earn between $50 to $75 a milking, and she did two milkings per day. As used to be quite common, she was often paid in cash, meaning that she avoided paying tax, which is illegal. All income earned must be declared, but that was just the way things were for her at the time, and for many others I should point out. There were perks to the job too, such as free petrol given by generous employers. Her costs were minimal, with just the tiniest bit of board being paid to her mum. And what earning money without the IRD knowing also means is that her student loan repayments were never automatically deducted from her income, as she appeared not to have any. Hindsight and new knowledge has now helped her realise that this didn't really help her any. 
A lot of money flowed through her hands, but she paid nothing off her student loan, and these were the days when student debt was not interest-free, so her debt increased. As her skills improved, and she was seen as a capable and trusted worker, the milking gigs got even better. She took on sole-charge jobs staying in her employers' houses while they were away, eating their food and using their fuel, and in turn she fed their pets, she mowed their lawns, and tended their gardens, and it meant no overhead costs for Nick. So these jobs would be for about 10 days at a time, and she would walk away with up to $1,500 cash in the hand, and she continued to spend everything she earned and had nothing to show for it. After the summer finished, her mum politely suggested Nick look for a different job in the agricultural field, one that would put her degree and intellect to good use, and she secured a role in Taranaki with a salary of $28,000. So this puts her $38,000 student debt into a little more context. Now on that salary, with 10% deductions, it would take over 13 years to pay off. Also, her paycheck would be 10% less each week because of it. After boarding with an elderly couple for a few months, which was actually a surprisingly common thing to do at the time if you were moving to a new town, she rented a farmhouse for 100 bucks a week and got a couple of flatmates in. It was at this time that Nick got a little alarmed that her student loan balance was actually increasing. The Nick of today said that she doesn't believe that we focus enough on that student loan debt hanging around for so long. It is something your school careers advisor is very unlikely to tell you. And indeed, I know a number of people who are still paying it off 25 years after leaving university. Ex-students also tend not to bank on life happening to them either. And with each passing year, more things pull on the money we make, meaning that even if we wanted to, it becomes harder to find the extra money to pay off student debt. Nick was having the required 10% deducted from her salary, and it's now 12%, yet her debt was still getting bigger, which she didn't like. So for a while, she forfeited even more of her meagre take-home pay and topped up those compulsory payments to hold the balance at $38,000. And then when the government changed the rules and stopped charging interest on student loans, she stopped those extra payments. In her mind, there was no need to bother anymore, which is the attitude I generally hear today. But it's always in the back of my mind that any government could easily reinstate those interest payments which is why I bang on about just paying back the money you borrowed and getting on with your life. Her new job had gruelling hours, but was a lot of fun. She got a couple of small pay increases and some overtime payments, which bumped her income up to around $32,000 a year. And 2002 was a good year. She met her life partner, Frank, which is not his real name. And she also moved to a different company in Taranaki, still in the agricultural industry, but in the specialised area of health and safety. So that old boss was right to see where her talents lay all those years ago. She remains with that company today and her starting salary was $45,000 plus a company car. And since that time, she's had the use of a company vehicle, which is a huge annual benefit to any employee. 20 years of not owning, running or maintaining a vehicle, such a huge financial win. The company also had and still has a bonus scheme, which provided she meets the criteria set, amounts to another three to $5,000 annually. And in her notes to me, she said that she is pretty sure she will stay with this company forever, if they will have her. She gets a huge amount of job satisfaction and works with pride and passion every single day. It's hard to find the perfect job, and it's a real pleasure to speak with someone who clearly has. In 2007, and aged about 27, her mum suggested that Nick was clearly becoming very settled in Taranaki, 
and because housing was cheap in the area she was living, that she should buy a house. Her partner was born under Mount Taranaki and was simply not interested in living anywhere else, so she accepted the fact that this was to be her home for the rest of her life. This was to be Nick's house, and she had no deposit and no idea, so off house hunting they went regardless. They found one that needed some work for $145,000, and as luck would have it, Frank is a builder. Because she had no deposit, because she still spent every single dollar she earned, her mum went guarantor for her, the only way that the bank could allow her to purchase it. The lending was based on her income and was in both her and her mum's names. She borrowed $150,000, more than the asking price. She, quote, had to, she said, because without it, she couldn't afford the lawyer's fees or any of the money for renovations. I would have argued that she couldn't afford a house full stop, but hey, I'm not a bank manager. I wondered why, given that they had been together for almost five years by now, that Frank was not part of this purchase. She didn't elaborate much except to say that early on in their relationship, he proved, she said, that he couldn't be trusted at all when it came to money. He has a wide range of talents and money handling is not one of them, it seems. To be fair to Frank, it was not exactly her talent back then either. Given he is less interested anyway, over time she has taken full control, which in turn has enabled his lack of interest, something they are both addressing now. But jumping to today, things are changing and she said, it's not like he is unaware of personal finances. Although their money remains separate, they talk about interest rates, mortgage payoff dates, bank balances. It's just that she has always done everything and he doesn't need to. It is just an observation of mine but I'm not sure that this is entirely healthy over time, and I think that Nick sees that too. The couples I see who truly win with money have a more united focus, shared goals, and shared bank account structures. I wondered if, at the time of purchase, that student debt of $38,000 affected her ability to borrow more money. No. She said she was a disaster with money, and with no savings track record and no deposit, she still got a mortgage, she still got a house. Most things you can save up for just by working a little harder for a short period of time. That had always worked for Nick in the past. But when on the back of a conversation from your mum you decide to go big and buy a home, then with no time to save money for a deposit, you quote, have to, as an adult, financially lean on your mum, also putting her financial life in jeopardy, I should point out. If Nick couldn't pay her mortgage, it would be her mum that they turn to for payment. Nick's lack of knowledge about money just meant that borrowing money was the first resort, not the last. And because there was very little pain caused by this, these decisions start to compound and grow, and before you know it, you are living paycheck to paycheck. The houses might have been cheaper back then, but the kicker was interest rates. She had a two-year fixed mortgage at 9.6%. And here comes one of Nick's biggest regrets. For the first four years, they paid interest only on the mortgage meaning that they never bought back a single brick from the bank, and at the end of the term they owed the same as what they borrowed, but had paid out thousands in interest to the bank. In a rising housing market, you can get away with this, as you can sell the home for more than what you paid, but that thought was not even on her mind. Why, I asked. Because every Kiwi likes a bit of DIY, and in Nick's case, any spare cash they could find went towards renovations in that time. She also mentioned something to me that I often hear. Buying a house is a bit of a cure-all for a spender. Buying a house meant that she was now forced to make mortgage payments, and she saw this, as many do, as enforced savings. 
So in a roundabout way, she was for the first time now saving money. It's quirky math. And personally, I don't really buy it, this carrot and stick approach to saving. When she reflects on this period, things were going great for them, she said. Both of them were working full time and the renovations were coming along, albeit slowly. In 2009, they decided they would like a family and she quickly became pregnant. She had always had it in her mind that she wanted to have finished having children by the time she was 30. Welcoming any child into your whanau is a wild ride and a life-altering experience. And their first child, born in 2009, was just that. Just two months after they were born, they were diagnosed with a life-threatening illness that would be with them for life. At the time, they didn't know what this diagnosis would mean for them, but immediately their plans of both being working parents and their child being in daycare no longer seemed like a practical solution. Unfortunately, a life shock such as this is an all-too-common occurrence, and it's why I push people to tidy up their life as they move through it, instead of leaving things undone, such as a student loan, such as a mortgage with no end date. Those things left unfinished compound over time and impact your future decision-making, no doubt about it at all. So they made the decision that Frank, who she said was proven to be an exceptional dad, would stay at home and Nick would return to full-time work to a job that would require quite a bit of travel. Their life revolved around an unwell child with hospital visits and constant worry, and the reason for her returning to work was that she had a greater earning potential, and even with trips away, more manageable work hours. So despite the original plans to both work because they needed the money, they officially became a single-income family. She said her employer was also incredibly understanding and supportive, something she will be forever grateful for. She juggled her maternity leave and her annual leave, which gave her a total of almost six months off work that was paid for. Now, Nick is a goal-orientated person. She said, give me a goal and I'll achieve it. So true to her word, she had her perfectly healthy second child just a fortnight before her 30th birthday in 2011. Now, dad was super busy at home with two little ones. She took five months off and then returned to full-time work giving her the income to just keep on top of the bills that they had coming in. Her career was going well and her pay had risen to about $60,000, but they were feeling squeezed. In 2011, interest rates were still high and again, they fixed their mortgage for two years at a slightly lower rate, but again, interest only. And she became increasingly aware that times were becoming much financially tougher for their expanding family. I don't think the world had changed, they had. A lot of pressure was going on her income, and when he could, her partner did find odd jobs here and there to earn extra money to keep them afloat. They had no savings, and they were living paycheck to paycheck. Now, when you think about it, this was no different to how she had lived her entire life. It was just that this time the stakes were getting higher, and more people were depending on Nick. It wasn't just her that she had to worry about anymore, and her picking up more work was just not an option. There were just not enough hours in the day. But like a frog in water that is slowly reaching a boil, they just soldiered on. Her student loan balance was slowly going down due to those 10% deductions from her salary. But that 10% of her income would have been kind of handy to take home at this stage in their lives, something she never could have considered way back when she first signed up to it. Still, the spending of the entire paycheck never let up and the bonuses that arrived once a year were spent on ongoing house renovations and on they stumbled. So enter, Nick said, the bad financial decision of higher purchase, aka the $10,000 leather sofa debacle. Now this is her greatest financial flop, she said, 
and it was a doozy. She badly wanted a $10,000 leather sofa, but she couldn't afford the $10,000 price tag. But cue card, which is a modern mechanism for daylight robbery, and the soothing justification for many a dumb purchase said, yes, you can afford it, Nick. So to put this in context, she was earning $60,000 gross, or before tax was deducted, and wanted to spend 10 grand of her after-tax income on a sofa. Utter madness. But she signed up to a three-year interest-free term, plus a $45 annual account fee. And she thought, well, this is easy. I'll pay it off in time. But when push came to shove, it was not that easy at all to find the money each month to make the $280 payments. She did get it paid off, a whisker within the three-year term, but only just. Now, although the sofa was really comfortable, this debt stung, and she said it was a stupid debt that hung over her for three long years. Now, that sofa lasted many years. It was ripped to shreds, and the middle had sagged so much that it touched the ground. Now gun-shy, she replaced it with a $300 used one that she found on Facebook Marketplace. This leather-look sofa is also peeling and falling apart at the seams, but it's doing the job, and she didn't entertain the thought of going back into debt for three years to replace it. She said that while these sofas have taught her a lesson in why you should not borrow money for a sofa, she also got, she said, a good lesson in quality. A better quality replacement has actually finally been ordered, and this time she is paying cash. She reflected on where all the money she earned went over the years. She said that as a family they travelled, mostly domestically, at least a couple of times a year. It is important to them that their children experience our own lovely backyard. While on these trips there was no expense spared, staying in hotels with pools, eating good food and doing all the activities that they wanted. Plus a whole lot of money was just frittered away on various vices and interests. She said that the TAB also owes her a fair bit of coin as they both love a good day on the punt. They enjoy horses and sports events, and these sports are, she said, made way more exciting with a bet on them. This is something that they dabble in, but each of them now have a limited amount of spending money to do it, and when it's gone, it's over. I asked if they've ever made a decent return on their betting, and she said that the cold, honest truth was that, although they have had some great colleagues over the years, the reality is the TAB has done far better out of the deal, which should not be a surprise to anyone listening. While frittering away the pennies, they have tried to make savings where they could. Three times over the years, they have shopped around for better banking deals and interest rates, making use of cashbacks where they can. They engaged one mortgage broker who wasn't worth the fee they charged, she said, so have since done it themselves. This has grossed them about $6,000 in cashbacks. They lost a little paying lawyers' fees for the transaction. They have changed banks too. They started out with BNZ, moved to ANZ, and are now back to the BNZ. To me, it seems like a ton of work for $2,000 a pop. And while she said it is niggly to change, she deems it worth the effort. Now, my observation is that when people rejig their mortgage, it gives them the feeling of having done something positive for themselves, taken a bit of control. But in my view, behavioral changes, such as reducing outgoings in the home, by which I mean stopping shopping so much, or an increase in monthly mortgage payment would far outweigh the $6,000 win. They do use credit cards, but not too much, just for a few online purchases, and when they make one, they immediately pay it back. It's got a credit limit of just $500. 
Now, I hear a lot of people doing it this way, which don't get me wrong, paying off a credit card in full is the only way to have one. But in a case like this, a debit card does the same thing with far less hassle and no annual card fee. The points you receive, particularly if you are a lower spender, are not worth the hassle either in the majority of cases, I reckon. Still, not getting a jump start on saving and investing a little each paycheck for future use meant that in the past they have twice extended their mortgage to pay for things. On one occasion, they increased their mortgage debt by $25,000 to pay for some house renovations, and the second time they borrowed a further $25,000 to pay for a surgery for Nick. She now questions whether each of these were good decisions and decided that yes, they were, justifying it due to the fact that they increased the value of their home and that she improved her health. But just to pay devil's advocate, what if they had instead had the thought to save up and pay cash for these things instead? Could they have done it? When your default is always to borrow money to get the things you want, no, at that time, they couldn't have done it. These days, it's a different story though, and I'm working my way towards that. So what of her student loan? Well, she used some pretty colourful language that I won't repeat to tell me how she felt about it. Now, I particularly want future students and students recently graduated to take note of what she had to say about it. She said that her student loan sat like a ball and chain around her ankle for years. It took her 17 years to pay it off once she finished her study. She said that she regretted that thing so much because it took 10% of every single paycheck she earned, meaning that was less money that she could take home to her partner and her children. And now it's even worse because in 2013, compulsory deductions were raised to 12%. She said that in hindsight, she should have used the student allowance and scholarship money to avoid taking on debt. She should have paid up front as best she could for her accommodation costs and course-related costs instead of borrowing the money. Borrowing money should have been her last resort, not her first. She has a lot of regrets about that student debt and the fact that it siphoned money out of her life for 17 years. She remembered at about age 25 feeling so frustrated as she watched her friends who had gone straight into local industry right out of school, earning decent wages, buying a house, paying it off, and were on a great path. Instead, Nick had gotten an education, none of which she chose to pay for up front, and then entered the workforce earning half of what they were, paying that money back week after week, and no asset to show for those weekly payments. She said that the fact the buck stopped with her and that she could have been so much better off, it didn't factor into her indignation at her situation at that time. The choices you make have consequences. It has only been in recent years that the education she received has advanced her career and the income she makes, and now she is pulling ahead, which is why it is so very crucial, in my opinion, that she makes far better choices from here on in. Comparing herself with others who didn't take that tertiary path has also relaxed her thinking about what might be right for her two tamariki when they finish school. She said that she can now see that education comes with a big cost, and getting a secure job straight out of school and being careful with the money you make can also get you to exactly the same financial spot as someone with an education. Her turning point was the realisation that it's not how much you make, it's what you do with it that matters so much. So just jumping back again, when they transferred their mortgage to ANZ, the bank also advised Nick to join KiwiSaver using a growth fund, which thankfully she did. Their advice coincided with a 4% pay rise at her work, so for some reason it triggered in her mind that she could afford it. 
So from then on, she has contributed 3%, which her employer matches. Now, this is where the knowledge just quietly starts to build for Nick. She took the time to run some scenarios where she increases the percentage she contributes, therefore greatly increasing her nest egg at 65. For now, she is keeping her contributions at 3%, but at least now she knows the math. She has since done some research on the fund itself and switched away from ANZ to a Fisher Funds Growth KiwiSaver Fund. And now that simple choice she made all those years ago to join KiwiSaver, a choice where she prioritised investing over spending for one of the first times in her life, she has a balance of about $70,000. And to see this is hugely motivating for Nick. At the same time, she opened up an investment account with Fisher Funds for both of their children and she is slowly adding to it, and their balances are sitting at around $600 each. Soon, her partner will also begin to contribute monthly to these investments, and they hope to build their combined $300 monthly investment up to about $10,000 per child by 2026. She said that in the past, she had toyed with the idea of KiwiSaver for them, but in the end decided she wanted this money to be accessible to them. However, more recently, she has decided that she will join them up to KiwiSaver purely because experience has taught her that if her account had been set up from the beginning, when she started her job, she would have just ticked the box to contribute from her wages. It would have been effortless and she would be much further ahead than she is now. And I really do agree with her logic here. One thing has led to another and in about 2020, she also began to get involved in share investing by joining Sharesies. Both Sharesies and crypto were the in thing. But watching friends make big money and lose big money on crypto made her see it for what it was, a really risky way to invest. And Nick, despite living her own financial life on the edge, tells me that she is not a fan of risk. She said that since that time she has dabbled in investing and has a balance of about two grand. She has signed up both of her children and they invest half of their weekly pocket money, which is about $5 in their Shazzy's accounts. They also invest part of any money they make doing odd jobs. And Nick said it is their choice what they invest in, and the only rule is that they are not allowed to sell. Now, this rule was established after one child saw the value of their shares drop and sold out, turning a paper loss into losing real money. Each child now has about $1,000 invested. As you might know, I too encourage my daughter to invest 50% of any money earned, and all of that money goes into buying a single large ETF fund, and that is it. I have encouraged her to create a habit that she won't ever stop and it seems to be working. By encouraging her own children to set aside a portion of every single paycheck they receive from day one, Nick has stopped them repeating her habit of spending everything they earn. And I can't express how huge a decision this is. Living paycheck to paycheck ends with her. Now, we talked about a few other things she has going on, such as insurance cover. So they carry house, car, which is for their one private vehicle, boat, contents, life, and for her, as the primary income earner, disability and impairment insurance. They have used a broker for the last three years and review their insurances annually, tweaking as needed. They keep an emergency fund of $10,000, but they don't use sinking funds for medical needs, pet bills, etc. They anticipate that the emergency fund would be called on for these, in which case they might find it to be a little too light at $10,000 particularly given the fact that she said that she would spend whatever needed spending to keep a pet alive. She also finds comfort in the fact that her employer offers a redundancy package if they were to ever disestablish her job. 
it would amount to about 50 grand and she said that oddly she finds comfort in knowing it's there but let's be honest she said she loves working where she does and would be devastated if it happened. So I think we are now pretty caught up on the backstory of Nick and Johnny just said to me that I'm at the halfway point so well done for those listening. Now learning about Nick turned up a relatively typical story of a family wandering along through life never thinking too far ahead financially And although they hit some bumps in the road, they found their way through and they just kept on going. They were managing to keep on top of mortgage payments, helped by her salary increasing gently over time. Nothing too drastic ever happened. No part of their monetary system all out failed. So nothing to make them think that there was really anything worth fixing or changing. If they were to look around them, I wouldn't have been surprised to hear that everyone else thought they were pretty normal too. A turning point came when she read the book The Barefoot Investor by Australian Scott Pape, and it offered a different perspective on money, and it prompted Nick to begin to look much more closely at her spending and earning and make some changes. It took her on a journey of research around the average cost of living in New Zealand, and she worked out what a family of two adults, two kids, two dogs and a cat typically spent on groceries in New Zealand each week, and she tried to reduce her spending down to that level and she failed miserably. As their household income had increased, they had become accustomed to good food, expensive food, and buying what she wanted when she wanted it, price be damned. Nick herself explained that she used to think nothing of spending $500 on groceries each week and throwing a third of it away at the end of the week. That was entirely normal to her. So she created her first budgets, and by creating a budget, over time, they did manage to rein this in. They now spend about $350 a week. Now that she pays attention to what they spend and what they eat, she has freed up about $150 a week or a massive $7,800 a year that can be redistributed to her mortgage paydown. She had some new information coming into her home about what other people were doing and it made her reassess their own situation. She said she could click and collect her groceries but she takes cash with her and has been doing so for about a year. And this stops her overspending. When the cash is gone, that is it. But her weekly spend came with a disclaimer, she said. They have a freezer full of beef and lamb, meat that they have raised themselves and that offsets costs at the supermarket. And she said that the amount that they spend is still too high and mildly embarrassing. And what I would say is that I'm delighted that they are actually paying attention. The other thing that I think many people in Aotearoa can relate to is that when money is not an issue because you have such a high income, which I'll come to shortly, it's very easy not to watch where it goes and to just blow the lot, knowing that you will get paid again soon or knowing that the bank will keep lending you more because of your high income. Now, I know there are a lot of people struggling financially here in New Zealand. Some simply don't make enough money to cover their living costs, but I also know a lot who are on high incomes compared to others, yet they feel they are struggling. And this comes down to where they are choosing to spend all of their money. They could make cuts, but have simply gotten used to buying everything they do, and they couldn't possibly consider going without. Working out what they spent on food was a fantastic first step for Nick, and it has had flow-on effects, prompting Nick to create a family budget where she began to track the money coming in and leaving the household. This, taking notice has made them smarter about where they spend their money and much more accountable for the way they do spend. Nick has come to spend hours working on her spreadsheet and has come to love it. 
Nick is the classic case of someone finding out about a bit of new information and going all in, developing systems and processes that work for her. For example, she found that withdrawing physical cash is the easiest way to keep track of what they spend on groceries. And when they shop, they leave their bank cards at home. And that way, you simply can't overspend. It's drastic, yet effective. And not only were they spending a lot on groceries, but they had what she called, quote, our ridiculous eating out habit, eating out a few times a week. So not only did they used to spend $500 a week on groceries, they also ate out a few times a week on top of that. And now I've watched enough episodes of Eat Well for Less on TV to know that food costs explode when you do this. So Nick and Urfano have reduced what they spend at the supermarket and they've cut back to eating out just once a fortnight, reducing their overall spending by thousands of dollars a year. She also gets out $100 a week for the family play money and it is fun to know that they can plan to have a good time each week, but when the money is spent, that's it until next week. They have a variety of envelopes with money in them for various things. So if you need fuel, go to the petrol envelope and take the money out. When it's empty, you're walking until the envelope is refilled next week. It's drastic. When you have been on autopilot for so long, though, you need something like this to reset your spending. She's also implemented a system where the day after she is paid, which is the same date every single month, every single bill is paid in full. So there is a flurry of activity once a month. She rang every supplier and set the same pay date for each one. It took a bit of work to do this, but it was well worth it, she said. So at the end of 2020, she said they were sitting pretty, due in large part to having started to pay attention. They'd been more aggressive with their mortgage and had it down to around $100,000. The house renovation was complete, and she was earning what she considered to be great money, $150,000 a year. They were planning ahead, and saving up for things in advance instead of redrawing on their mortgage. The sofa incident had taught them a lesson, and they had used any work bonuses she received to save up and pay cash for renovations. For carpet, a kitchen refresh, gas hot water, a used car, external paint, aluminium windows, re-wallpapering, internal garage conversion, minor surgery, and a holiday to Australia. But two things happened that were major changes for them. She moved into a new position at work with a lot more pressure and responsibility managing a large team, and with that came a pay rise up to $193,000 a year. Now I just want to focus on her pay rate for a moment. There was a point in her career where she realised that she was being paid less than the men doing the same job as her, and it was straight up sexism. So she was vocal with her employer about having this evened up, telling them, quote, I know what the men I work with earn and you should do right by me. And to their credit, they did, at one point raising her pay by $30,000 to match. And she sees this as setting the scene for the next woman coming through the ranks. We need Wahini like this to advocate for others. So thank you, Nick. The second change was that out of the blue, some friends offered to sell Nick and her partner their family home. So even though the finish line of their own mortgage was now well in sight, the temptation to move was huge. A bigger home, once again in need of work, a larger section, and a nicer area. So they haggled a price of $530,000. She rang the bank and within 15 minutes had pre-approval up to a lending limit of $550,000. Why the extra $20,000? For DIY, of course. They spat and shook on the deal with their friends then and there. Their friends received payment in full, but would remain living in the house paying a low-end rent 
until such time as their new home was ready for them to move into in about three months' time. And that, my friends, is how you immediately forget your plans to become debt-free and instead get deeper into debt. Even if you think they are not, the best laid plans are generally always subject to change. It is easy to fall back into old patterns. So these guys, they now had two houses and two mortgages. Until their friends had an exact move-out date, Nick and her partner couldn't sell their own home. They didn't want to sell up and try to rent with pets as they didn't know how long they needed to rent for. But the housing market was booming. Their new home would be vacant soon enough, so they felt pretty safe. What it also meant was that they could never rely on fixing in mortgages for longer periods of time as the break fees were unpredictable. So plans change, and vague plans are subject to change even more. They finally listed their first home for sale in March of 2022, at a time when the housing market, she said, was falling. When they got a contract on their home, it was subject to another house sale, and the offer they had accepted was well below what they could have got had the house sold in a hot market. Now, given the default for many Kiwis is to buy a rental property, and they do this simply by retaining the home they move out of, and given the fact that for a time they had tenants, so would rental property owners by default, we talked about whether this was ever a long-term option for them to keep both houses. They did have fantastic tenants all lined up, had the sale fallen through on their original home, but in all honesty, the thought of people not loving and caring for their property as well as they did was not something that they could bear watching. She did run some numbers and thought that after expenses, they could have cleared just $16,000 a year, which is a poor return from a large investment, plus one that has many, many outgoings. The changes to tax deductibility on rental property made it less attractive as well. And also, the math on reducing their mortgage on their new home in a period of skyrocketing mortgage interest rates, it really played on her mind a lot, and to her it felt too risky to hold both homes. So, a staggering 72 weeks after they bought their second house, in August of 2022, their friends moved out. But with the sale of their own home not yet completed, Nick now still had two houses and no rental income coming in to offset the costs that they were incurring. Yet they struggled on. With the house empty, they set about a renovation. Of course, a complete repaint internally, new carpet, new hard flooring, and a hundred trips to the dump to tidy up the section. Her high salary helped, and they never went hungry. But this, Nick said, was a slightly stressful time, and they were topping up bank accounts left, right, and centre to keep on top of their now double mortgage payments. But given they were doing a big renovation and money was tight, where was it coming from, I wondered? Because her mum knew their home would sell soon, she lent them the money for some of their renovations, which was a godsend. It meant that they could complete the renovations before moving in. Now, I was listening to all this, and I see it as two steps forward and one step back. One decision they made forced another thing to happen, and then they reached that point of being so far in that they think they can't back out. Finally, at the end of October in 2022, the house that they paid $145,000 for in 2007, it sold for $510,000, which is a $365,000 increase in 15 years or an appreciation in value of $24,333 per year. However, let us not forget that they paid interest only for four years and still had a mortgage of about $100,000 to pay back when they sold it. Plus, they poured money and time into renovations during the time they owned it, and they had to pay her mum back too. It is far too simplistic to look at buy and sell prices. 
So they now have their lending spread over two mortgages on one property. When we spoke in late 2022, they had $49,000 at 4.89% until March of 2023, paying $1,500 per month. Target payoff date is 2026. The second mortgage is about $210,000 at 4.14% until October of 2023, with a $5,000 monthly payment also targeted to be paid off by 2026. So, two very short terms that will instantly jump to higher rates once they mature. If they can set extra money aside in the meantime, that will allow them to make extra lump sum payments at the time of renewal. Their new house that they purchased for $530,000 now has an estimated value of $850,000. So even if you deduct interest they are paying in the significant repairs that they have done, which I don't know the value of, this is a huge gain in a short period of time. With all this change going on, they also upgraded both their boat and their family car. Two steps forward, one step back. So let's just start with the car. They had a car that they paid cash for, but Nick's heart became set on a new $48,000 SUV that they would need to borrow money for to buy. It was pretty easy to justify the expense because A, she wanted it, and B, her husband could use it for the business that he had set up. There is no easy way to explain all this away except to say that it is simply a case of lifestyle inflation and keeping up with the Joneses. Income goes up, wants and desires increase in line with it. Thankfully, apparently, one of my podcast episodes was well-timed, and hearing the story of someone else explaining their financial life, it talked her out of the purchase. They instead purchased a used but meticulously maintained SUV for $19,000 cash. The boat? Well, she said that she couldn't really explain the purchase of this huge $63,000 depreciating asset, but she gave it a good try, other than to say that her partner has done an amazing job in all aspects of life, and fishing is a passion they both enjoy. In fact, she said that fishing is good for both their souls and their relationship, and one day, if they manage to retire, they plan on doing a lot more of it. When they spat and shook on buying their friend's house all those years ago, they thought their own home would sell for about $400,000. Nick had said to her partner at that time that anything above that amount he could put towards a boat, and they agreed he could spend $80,000 max. Talk about gold fever. So, when the house sold for $110,000 more than they expected, the decision was already made to buy the boat, and if anything, he did well and came in well under the mark at $63,000, which was a silver lining, she said. Another silver lining was that the house they bought for $530,000 is now valued at $850,000 and that this value does not take into account renovations, of which they've done plenty. She said that this boat will be our boat until the day we die, which I'm giving Nick a hard time here, but I know she can take it, is just a lie we tell ourselves to justify a purchase. So while the whole process hurt cash flow at the time, they have made a really healthy on-paper equity gain overall, but they've bought some really expensive stuff too. And more good news for Nick, her salary was recently bumped up to $233,000, and she said that her potential to earn further bonuses is very achievable. The opportunity sounds there for the taking. Now, I want to pause here for a quick explanation before I move on. What is the point of sharing Nick's story? Because I'm not going to lie to you, I was frustrated as I was hearing it. Yes, she started with nothing, had few financial skills, got herself into debt, but over time earned enough income to buy whatever she wanted. 
sounds great, but that is not the story. Anyone who sets their mind to it can make a lot of money. You can, I can. In my mind, the story is not increasing your income each year, upgrading your housing, building up equity in a home, upgrading cars and boats along the way. It's what happens to you if the music stops. If I was to finish this episode right now, Nick and her family still have a mortgage and they have very few assets other than a house and a small KiwiSaver fund. They also own a boat and a car, but both of those things go down in value over time, not up. All of their assets are illiquid. If you tally up her income of $233,000 plus her variable bonuses plus income that Frank is earning, their household income, not that they share at all, is about $300,000 annually. So they can easily keep on borrowing money to buy stuff because they have the income to pay it back. Inside my mind as we were speaking was the chant, Nick, please tell me you're going to be better with money soon, and that she stops taking two steps forward and a step backwards. And finally, I'm delighted to move on and let you see how the situation is unfolding now. As soon as she told me their combined high income and their debt levels, I could see massive potential for a strong financial future that she is still trying to see. But I've been doing this a while and Nick is still executing the U-turn of moving away from borrowing money to create her own wealth. Brick by brick, she is building up a stronger foundation. This newfound love of budgeting means that their household budgets are written down and set, and they are now aggressive in debt reduction, with $6,500 a month going to their mortgage, which by my calculation is about half of her after-tax take-home pay. She has now created other money goals in various bank accounts called sinking funds. For the kids' futures, by 2026, she plans to have saved $10,000 into each of her children's Fisher Fund investments. For their savings targets, such as a big overseas holiday they want to take before the kids leave home, they are also saving up for some smaller house renovations that they will pay cash for, and at the time we spoke, they were saving for Christmas. By 2026, she said that she will have her KiwiSaver balance over $100,000. Their emergency fund is a work in progress. She likes the balance to be maintained at $10,000, but it is currently sitting at about half that, as they have currently loaned money to family with a six-month payback term. There is another small loan of $350 out there, but they are comfortable with the fact that this may never be paid back, so really, it was just a generous gift in a time of need. And this goes back to what I was saying earlier. Your emergency fund needs to be bigger if you know your outgoings have the potential to be bigger. I hope you're still with me, and I hope if you're walking the dog, you apologize to it. You must be wearing its legs off by now with the um, length of this podcast, but I am getting there, I promise you. Coming back to Nick, there was one place her money was going that she has zero regrets about. She said that she is a firm believer that if you have something to give, then you should, whether that be time, money, mentorship, experience, or just a friendly ear. She said that she is always challenging and encouraging friends to share what they have with others. And from a financial perspective, she gives about four grand a year, and even when her income was far lower, she still gave. She said that she hurts for and fights for the underdog, and seeing people struggle is really hard for her. Poverty concerns her, and people in lower socioeconomic situations hurt her heart. So, she gives. She donates to Women's Refuge, the Heart Foundation, the Rescue Helicopter, and Starship Hospital, to name a few. She also volunteers and fundraises for organizations close to her heart. She cooks and gives away meals. She donates to food banks. She has been known to pay for other kids' camp fees. 
so that the kids don't miss out and their family doesn't struggle. She will pay money off people's accounts of the doctors, pay for medical appointments and pay for petrol for the parents to get their tamariki to that appointment. If there is an appeal going and she hears about it, you can guarantee that she wants to support it. She will also lend family money. Most pay it back and the others are good for it over time. Nick thinks it is far more important to know that their nieces and nephews are fed, they're warm, they have power and are clothed. Plus she really understands that asking for money is hard and she is glad that they feel comfortable asking her for it. Now I applaud her giving nature and the fact that she is trying to use her situation to make Aotearoa a better place. Yes it has slowed down her own financial progress and dreams but that does not bother her one single bit and she likes to think that if her luck changed and she was in a tight spot people would be there for her too. And this is what the world needs and I think that she will find that as she turns the corner on her own finances, she will be able to be even more generous. So as I keep saying, with two steps forward, there's always a small step back because it's very hard to change the habits of a lifetime. She said a brand new kitchen would be nice eventually, but they will only tackle that if they decide to sell up or win lotto. Or maybe when we are debt free and can pay cash, she said. If you ever want the kitchen, Nick, my advice is to go with your plan B, become debt-free, save up and pay cash, and invest the money you would have spent on Lotto instead. She is now more forward-thinking, deciding that she wants to retire at 56 if she can. She has been with her current company for 20 years already and is happy to stay there if they'll have her, and it was really nice to hear that she adores her job. But instead of hoping for retirement at 56 to happen, like hoping to win Lotto, she is finally planning for it to happen, and that is a massive difference. She estimates that although she won't be able to access it, she would have about $315,000 in her KiwiSaver by then, which would continue to grow over time. And so why the age of 56 to retire? Simply because she knows a couple of people who retired then and it seemed to treat them well. Her plan now is to be mortgage-free by the end of 2026 at the latest when she is 46, Receiving bonuses at work could speed this up, but they are not a given, and keeping her spending in check and on track can be a given though, but it's down to her to stick to the promises she has made herself. She said that the thought of being mortgage-free and having that freed up $6,500 monthly payment ready to invest and save, it excites her and motivates her. And each time she wavers, I would encourage her to think about just how flush with cash she will be when they're debt-free. So now that she is working her way towards a better future, how is she teaching her own two children about putia? Well, she loves a yarn, don't I know it, and kōrero is important to her. Every Sunday is roast night and the kids will share, vent and talk over dinner. They know they have her in Frank's ear and they are all well rested and they are free to talk about everything and anything as they plan the week ahead. And she also walks with her kids, another fantastic opportunity to chat. They speak honestly and openly about money at home and she has used the mistakes and bad choices she has made to educate them and although she feels mildly obsessed with setting her kids up for success and providing for them to get started, her hope is that if they can manage to avoid every trap she fell for and they keep building upon the good habits they are already showing, they'll probably not need a cent from mum and dad. She values all the support her mum gave her over the years even though she never had much money and she was always there for Nick and her brother. So Nick is embracing the best bits of her upbringing, adding some new knowledge, which includes actively engaging her kids in saving and investing and doing her best to raise some great kids. 
Nick is also mulling over how she could teach others to avoid the mistakes she thinks she made. She imagines where she would be today if instead of spending every single paycheck down to its last cent and then borrowing money on top of that, she had saved some instead. Her kids won't have the same regret. She is teaching them, as I have with my own daughter, to by all means spend money, but to always set a portion aside for the future use. Nick's young teenage kids are now asking for jobs to do, such as painting the fence. And because it's a big job, and she doubted their ability to stick to it, she even incentivized them with a completion bonus of lunch at a cafe if they got it done. She never thought they would stay on a paintbrush for longer than 20 minutes, but they did. And then they asked for their earnings to go into the bank. I had a friend over the other day for a coffee, an ex-bank manager, and he is adamant that if you can encourage and lock in these types of behaviours early, then they become good financial habits for life. For her own kids, even at this young age, they talk about their options once they finish school, which may or may not include a tertiary education. She doesn't mind what they do, just that they do what they love. You have to enjoy what you do. And if they do go into further education, the family intention is they will not take out loans. Instead, it will be a collective of Nick and Frank helping alongside the kids chipping in as much as they possibly can. Another good change is that since listening to these podcasts, she has become a lot more open with her friends about money. And if she is being honest, a bit cockier in challenging them about some of the things that they do, or at least challenging them to think differently. She has a small and close circle of friends, and all of them know each other's financial decisions and are happy to discuss money. This doesn't mean that each of them are all over the stuff, but the conversation has absolutely started, and I think this is really important that we get a peek into what other people are doing so that we can change, or not, what we're doing. Now, given I was just speaking with Nick, I asked her how her and her partner handled money as a couple now. For many years, he was a full-time parent, but when time allowed as the kids got a bit older, he worked some casual jobs here and there, and any money he earned was his to spend. But if they were a little short that month, he would chip in, she said. There was a time where he tried returning to full-time work, but the wheels of the whānau started to wobble, and it became just too hard for them to both juggle full-time jobs and children. So he returned to casual work and took on a job working a maximum of 20 hours a week for a local employer. More recently, he moved away from that and has started his own business, working about 25 hours a week in total, and he has been able to set his rates at a level that sees him making money. Again, she said all that money is his to keep, but now gone are the days of her needing any of it to prop up the family finances. Now, I found this odd. Why does she work and share her money, yet when he works, it's his money? And she said that Frank has many incredible attributes, but handling money is not one of them. And this is where her new journey with money deviates down a different path to his. She said of his financial literacy, he is like she used to be, but a thousand times worse. He is neither driven nor bothered by money, she said. He either has some or he doesn't. And if he has some, it's spent. He has no desire to think about the future. And in fact, he still has a student loan of an unknown amount. She guessed at about six grand. And because she said she literally forced him to do so, he has finally signed up to KiwiSaver with a balance of maybe six grand. Now, he sounds like a highly skilled tradesman that many people want to work with and for, but to hear that someone with his lack of awareness or interest around money is going into business is to me quite concerning. Nick will be doing his bookkeeping, but still, when you hear of small businesses failing, 
lack of cash flow, running out of money, running up bills, neglecting to pay tax, well, he runs the risk of all of this. If you pay no attention to your money that you earn via a PAYE job, why would you pay attention to business money? Now, it's not my right to be concerned about people when they are clearly not concerned themselves, but the analogy that came to mind was the two of them in a dinghy out at sea when Nick is frantically bailing out the water and he was on the other side of the boat drilling a hole and letting it back in. But she told me not to worry, as although she handles all of their or her finances, she has everything documented and written down for him with very clear instructions should she get hit by a bus. Now, unless those instructions come with a new partner to make him follow them, I just don't think it's going to work out the way she details in her elaborate plan. So when she talks of retiring at 56, that is her plan for herself. And because he appears to not have one, and they certainly don't have the same plan, she said she has jokingly made it clear that at the rate he is saving, he will need to work until he's 78 to support himself. So there was no shared goal here, and to me, that's a red flag. It gave me a bit of hope when she said that more lately she has noticed a shift and a change in him and what he is doing with his money, and their kids have been asking him questions about his money, and it seems to have prompted him to start contributing from his income into the kids' savings accounts of about $400 a month, which is a step in the right direction, I guess, but I'd love to see him and Nick come around the table together for a more shared financial future. I think that's the bit that's missing for now. But I've heard of this split in a couple many times, where one cares deeply and the other couldn't care less. And in a way, Nick hinted at how the less interested spouse can be entirely content with the status quo. She said that, I do deep down inside know he doesn't really need to worry, as he knows that there is no way in hell that she will let him fail, and she will always provide, and to date we have managed. She would like him to at least be slightly interested, but after 20 years of life together, she knows that this is a big ask. There are different levels of enthusiasm for money. It doesn't stop her rabbiting on at him constantly. And who knows, she said, one day he might just hear her. Now, moving on, Nick had a few resources to share with us. Um, the book by Frances Cook, Tales from a Financial Hot Mess, plus her podcast, Cooking the Books, obviously, The Barefoot Investor by Scott Pape, and the book, A Real Girl's Guide to Money by Effie Zahos, and her Facebook profile says that this book is for every woman with a voice in her head saying you earn a decent income, so why are you still broke? She also likes the One Up Project and anything that Mary Holm either writes or says. Now the book Atomic Habits by James Clear was one she liked too. It teaches you to create long-lasting habits, something she has always had a problem doing with money, but she has created a budget and she has stuck to it, and she keeps herself accountable by sharing it with her whanau. She also rates sorted.org.nz. She also had a few thoughts to share for young adults in their final years of school. Although I suspect a young adult in their final year of school might not have listened to such a long podcast, but hopefully they did. University is just one of many good options. For her, it piqued her intellectual curiosity and it taught her to speak, to write and to learn. But there are many excellent and different pathways in life. She would encourage people to contact the big plants and companies in their area and ask about the wide range of apprenticeships and jobs on offer. They will willingly speak with you because they are actively looking for staff and if you get in touch with them, it saves them the job search and you get to go to work and are paid to train on the job. She said that in her industry, the starting wage ranges from $26 to $32 an hour depending on the shifts worked. 
So if you have an interest in something, you can be specific. For example, asking for a role where you get to work with people or work with numbers or to train to be an electrician, a driver or whatever. Oh my goodness. So this is a long episode and I just hope that I've patched it all together into a logical story. It took quite a bit of work. Um, I'm on the home straight now and I wanted to let you know what was Nick's plan from here on. But before I wrap up, I have another quick message from today's sponsor. If you want to supercharge your finances with Pocketsmith, they've got a deal for you. Happy Saver listeners get a whopping 50% off your first two months of Pocketsmith's premium plan. To get your deal, go to pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. That's pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. They were so close to owning their first house, but then they deviated and upgraded. And by upsizing their home, she saw huge potential for capital gains and he saw a lot of hard work. Plus, she was very honest when she explained that she was also materialistic and she just wanted a new house. She then told me an outright lie that this will be their last home and they won't move again. It isn't and they will is my prediction. Now, I was proved correct when in the next breath she pointed out that their section is subdividable and that the house will be too big once their kids up and leave home. So in the back of their mind is the thought that they may downsize in future. This conversation is just so typical of how Kiwis view housing. It's our home, it's our sanctuary, until someone offers us a ton of money for it or we find a better one somewhere else. I just hope that they have enough good habits now ingrained, such as aggressive debt pay down, paying into retirement funds, increasing their savings, paying cash for things, that if, when the inevitable happens and they want to move, they have all their bases covered, and are finally starting to have assets that are greater than the sum of their house and vehicles. Now, given that Nick loves a good goal to aim for, she has that sheer will to achieve, which will mean that if she does get the house paid off in full by 2026, when she is 46, she will be one step closer to retiring at the age of 56. She thinks she has made every mistake you can make, which I don't think she has, but She said that she also thinks she has recovered and discovered herself and a good money path that is setting her up for future success. Her money journey got off to a slow start, full of questionable decisions, some good luck and some great times, and now she finds herself in the very fortunate position of earning an above average income, which up until recently she spent in its entirety. More recently, she has realized she is in the position to be able to do smart things with a lot of money. Her financial triumph is the evolution of her understanding of how Putia works and the changes she has made to how she thinks about money. It is accepting what she did in the past as in the past, those mistakes didn't destroy her future, and deciding she gets to choose her own future. Her mantra now is, I've got this and I can do this. So next time I speak with her, I'd love to hear more of the word we, as I think that is the part that still needs work. Two is greater than one. Her and Frank both have different strengths and the combination of those strengths would override any weakness and make them a pretty formidable pair, I believe. New information on how to handle money better has made her cringe at past decisions made, such as ignoring her student loan and pretending it didn't matter. She has never shied away from hard work. She had a great work ethic and earned good money, but it did nothing of great benefit for her long term because she had no idea how to actually hold on to the money she earned, and it meant she would always have to just work harder and harder. But now, finally, she's working smarter. 
She has come a long way, but the journey is not over yet. But she said she has a plan now, something she never had before. She has her why and the how defined. She has the tools and the growing knowledge. She now just requires the discipline and the focus and the drive to pull it all off. So a massive, massive thank you, Nick, for speaking to me. I get the feeling if you and I ever ended up in the same room with a bottle of wine, we would need to clear our diaries for a good 24 hours. We both have so much to say, and despite the length of this episode, I feel I really only scratched the surface, but I hope that I managed to tell your story as it stands so far, and I'm really looking forward to the update, so thank you. So that is all from me this week. And you know that if you want to get in touch, you can find me at thehappysaver.com. And please do share this episode with your friends. It's the best way that people can learn about the podcast. And I would love it if you would talk more about money with your own friends and whanau and help me continue to help others be better with money. So until next time, happy saving. Happy saving.